This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I'm Philip C and this is The Breakfast Grill. Now, 2022 wasn't exactly the banner year for China tech companies. And while most of the spotlight was focused on Jack Ma and Alibaba, there was another behemoth that for many epitomizes perhaps the best and worst of this industry. Today, I speak to Lulu Yilunchen. She is an editor at Bloomberg and author of Influence Empire, which highlights the story of Tencent and China's tech ambitions. Welcome, Lulu, to the show. How are you doing? Great to be here. And Lulu, you wrote this book because you were inspired by this notion of unearthing the story behind Tencent, right? You know, considered one of China's biggest entrepreneurial stories. Um, How difficult was it to get a true sense of what really happened in Tencent, you know? Considering that Ma Huateng, or many know him as Pony Mua, is a relatively low-key person. Well, it became a fascination for me because I covered the company for so long. And you're absolutely right. There's many books about Jack Ma, who is Pony's competitor, and they are not related. But very few stories or there's literally no English book out there that that takes a comprehensive look at the company. And part of it is because the company is very low profile and they don't like doing interviews. So um, a lot of this book was based on interviews with former employees and also people working at the company who were helpful enough to talk on background and providing guidance and then just years of experience covering them and the companies that they invested into. And for those uninitiated, perhaps share with us, why is Tencent considered a giant in China's tech industry? Yeah, the the most interesting part when I started writing out this book was even though Tencent at the time was one of the top 10 companies in the world and at one point was bigger than Facebook, outside of China and Asia, uh, people had very, very little knowledge about this company. Um, To most people, they have never heard of this company even before. Um, I think even for the people who are familiar with them, um, they know WeChat, which is, they think of it as the equivalent of WhatsApp, but in in reality, it's so much more. So if you don't know anything about this company, you can largely think about it in three chunks. There's the social media aspect, which is underpinned by WeChat, and that's the messaging platform, and also QQ, which gave them the head start during the PC era. And then there's the gaming business, which is where they actually make most of their money, um, and that's why they became such a big company in the world, um, looking at all your most popular titles like Fortnite, um, Clash of Clans, League of Legends. These are Tencent is behind many... The, either the makers or the or they directly own uh, a stake in many of the companies that operate these these uh, very famous gaming titles. And then finally, the third part is where um, Tencent is looking to invest. And that's where investors are are really curious and looking forward to learn more about, which is the cloud business. And also, um, to a certain extent, they're investing a lot in um, industrial technology. So think of the company largely in three parts. 
people in China probably know the brands on the first pillar, the WeChats and such, the QQs. The second pillar about the gaming side, it's a very much a global business. And the third part, it's, it's kind of shrouded in this uncertainty and the prospect of growth. But underpinning these three core business pillars, really, it is the enigma of a pony moi. Um, and he came from a relatively unassuming background, right? Uh, with degree just in software engineering to become one of the world's biggest entrepreneurs. Was this really by chance? I think his upbringing, I wouldn't say that he was completely disadvantaged. He actually had a very good upbringing. His parents, his father actually at one point did um, rise to a pretty high ranking for a state-backed company. So I think having that kind of access or, or getting that kind of mentality mindset from his father is why I think Pony was never just satisfied in being a, one of a dozen middle ma- managers, which he could have done if, if he just Proje- uh, continue down his trajectory, but he he really wanted to create something that that really set him apart, and that's what separated him from the other engineers or programmers of the same training. So I think he he struck luck with his uh, high school classmates who became his early co-founders, and then from there, even though Tencent uh, was on the verge of collapse and almost died many times, every time they managed to find an investor to come to the rescue and salvage their operation to live another day. So part of this book touches upon those early days and and what it was like for for this company because their persistence, they managed to to actually grow into um, the scale that we're seeing today. It's very interesting that QQ wasn't a resounding success. It, as you said just now, so many ups and downs, uh, many lives I think Tencent managed to just pull through. He probably has a cat. Perhaps can you help me explain the tenacity and resilience of Pony Muma? How did he just move from one crisis to the other? Was it just sheer luck or was there some tenacity and resilience that was embedded in that? So I think a large part of entrepreneurship is really dependent on which cycle you are in. And when they started their company, they it was towards the end of 1999, you know, the early dot-com bubble, which is why the early founding days of the company was so tumultuous because they really went through that boom and bust cycle. And we're kind of in the same cycle right now, which is why, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, I think like the most important thing for them is to survive this cycle. Mm. So Pony, even though they had this great idea, which is QQ, and they, they borrowed the idea. They In the early days, they were a copycat. They took that idea from an Israeli company and replicated the model to China. And when you think about the market, the, um, the demand was there for people to communicate in a cheaper form on desktop. In a down cycle, you absolutely need to think about what your revenue model is. And that's what investors cared a lot. And for the longest period of time, they just couldn't find a sustainable model that would bring in a a revenue steady revenue stream which is why a lot of the early investors sold out. I think from there, they but they managed to keep the business going for a while by doing a lot of moonlight projects and bring some kind of money. And then towards um, a few years later, you know, they stumbled upon gaming, which 
brought in an extra chunk of revenue. I don't think like in the early days they thought this would be become such a pillar for for their entire uh, business model. In fact, in the early days, the founders were quite against branching out and doing other other business streams. Um, I think like when when after the mobile internet age, a key success for the company or a key transition for them was when they managed to, um, there were three teams competing internally and one of them, which was created by Alan Zhang, became what we now know as WeChat. And I, that really helped the company make the transition, the leap into the mobile internet age. With WeChat, they really became a household name and that's like really penetrated all aspects of life to to and that that became the foundation to helping Tencent become what it is today. Talk about the story just now about the different internal teams actually fighting with each other for resources. It felt quite ruthless internally, uh, you know, in terms of how Tencent management uh, did try to allocate resources within internal organizations. But what was also very unconventional in Tencent was how they approached investments, isn't it? I mean, they have their fingers on many investments across in China. Perhaps can you share with us the approach towards investments, which at times feels a bit unconventional, but it's evolved a lot over a period of time, hasn't it? I think if if you look at where this strategy came from, um, they are a very prolific investor and probably as powerful as any other fund funding house out there on par with the Sequoias and Hill Houses of our world. That strategy came from um, the period around 2010, 2012, because like I mentioned earlier, in the early days, they really were, they, they were copycatting every kind of new business model um, product on the street to the extent that they were so hated that um, there was a revolt against them and a huge backlash. And I think after that, Tencent had to go through this soul searching moment where they realize they they can't go and compete with every newcomer on the street and instead of trying to kill off every new startup they had tremendous resources and in, in their traffic that via mobile uh, via QQ and WeChat and then also they had a, a very deep pocket so using that war chest and the traffic that they had, they could have become a better ally for a lot of these startups. And that that's where the transition, the new strategy came in. Um, I think the company is going through another transition at this moment in yeah. time due to the regulatory environment, but also because we're in a, in a different period of the cycle again. I think the company is adjusting again and whatever comes out of this period will probably set their their strategy going forward for the next next few years again. And that's my next question to you. You talk about them being virtual copycatters. They really were able to replicate very fast, but since then they've kind of shifted tone. I guess then with respect to the next phase of the strategy, how does Tencent try to ride the next wave, you know? It tried to forecast where it saw itself in terms of mobile payments, food delivery, ride-hailing, video gaming, to even stay in the metaverse, you know? What's their approach in, in terms of trying to uh, see the next wave, to see the next growth? Well, because the regulatory environment has changed, they can't use the machine gun approach again to invest in everything that they think they have that has a potential um this down cycle that we're in right now also means that they have to tighten their budget and really focus and so i think going forward 
you're already seeing Tencent divest from some of the companies that they invested from Meituan and also C. Um, but I think like going forward, they're going to be more focused. They're not stopping or slowing down in terms of investments in gaming companies. But the Chinese government is also quite worried about companies that have their fingers in too many pies. And instead of having massive conglomerates that control everything from content to fintech, payments, finance, uh, even real estate, I think they want companies that are just like focused in their own area and also operate in a regulated framework that doesn't take away the lucrative businesses from state-owned enterprises as much as they could in the past. And we're going to talk about the challenge tensions they will have with the state after the break. On The Breakfast Grill, we have with us Lulu Yilunchen, author of Influence Empire, the story of Tencent and China's tech ambitions. Up next, is the era of exponential growth and empire building finally over for Tencent? Keep it here, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back. I'm Phil C. And on the grill is Yilun Chen from a Bloomberg editor and author of Influence Empire, the story of Tencent and China's tech ambitions. Now, Lulu, let's contrast Ponima with Jack Ma. Now, you say they're not related and they have very distinct leadership styles. Could you perhaps highlight the similarities and differences? So Jack Ma is famous not only within China, but I think he's become, he was the face of Chinese entrepreneurship. Um, he would be hobnobbing with celebrities, uh, politicians from around the world at conferences like Davos, whereas Pony has really kind of made a career of hiding behind the scenes. And part of it is because of his background training, because he is a programmer and, you know, he focuses on the product um, instead of the, <laughs> instead of pushing himself as the product. I think in terms of how they run the companies, it's also very different for Alibaba. For the longest time, Jack Ma was the sole and he really decided the strategy and it was kind of a top-down um, culture. Whereas for at Tencent, um, they allowed teams to compete internally. So there was a lot of uh, organic grassroots kind of bottom-up kind of development where teams were allowed to freely experiment and then to a certain extent even compete internally. And at, at some point when the businesses became very big and the competition got to a destructive point, management would step in and then say, do we need to consolidate? Do we need to do something more in order to make sure that this business is sustainable? So like you, you can already tell by how they develop new initiatives, uh, the company culture is quite different. What I find interesting in the book also is that for Pony, he really took a lot of effort in building a very broad team of leaders from multiple backgrounds. And for me, that's very interesting that you always hear this story about diverse leadership. It seems like Pony really embraced that theme much early on in, in, in the whole Tencent experience. Do you agree with that assertion that he really went out intentionally to try and build a broad-based, diverse team of members from all sorts of backgrounds? In terms of finding people who are more competent than him, he has a big heart. And that's what I hear repeatedly from people who work for him and his executives. People who have interviewed both with him and Jack Ma, the feedback is that they dis some people 
people have decided to work for Pony because they think like it, even if you work for somebody like Pony, there is potential to grow and there is no there's no cap. You don't see the ceiling mm. and decide I can never outgrow. I can never step out of the shadow of this person. Whereas for Jack Ma, you know, he is this godlike figure internally and even externally. So it's very hard to outshine Jack Ma once you work for Alibaba. Everything that you do is kind of following the footsteps or the strategy that this person who has great vision set out. So in that sense, Pony is very good at rallying people who are more competent and smarter than him. Mm. And he, he he's still able to lead these people. You highlight many interesting battles that took place between Tencent and perhaps its internal competitors, especially with Alibaba and Meitu. And that was a classic epic battle in my view. There was also another one which really struck me, which was that whole battle with Microsoft entering China. Did you think that was a pretty landmark uh, fight in terms of how how now we see the world in terms of tech? That that whole epic fight of trying to stop Microsoft from trying to gain a foothold in China is a result of us now seeing the world divided between China and the rest of the world in terms of tech. Uh, that that battle was important because before that, I don't think Chinese companies had the confidence to say that they could compete with global companies of that scale. And while while they were fighting that fight, uh, Alibaba was also battling eBay. And in that sense, they also won. Critics could always argue that it's because of the Great Firewall that they managed to win and kick out these companies. And I think to a certain extent, it was true, as I highlighted in the book for Microsoft, a huge part of it was because of the, they didn't put their servers in China. And so the delay in, in the user experience when people logged into the page really made a huge difference. But the other equally important part was how companies organize and run their local operations outside of the U.S. And for Microsoft at that point, I think a huge frustration for their team internally was that every decision had to be made out of headquarters. And in a place like China, where every new product design update is done by like for Tencent, they were doing this updating their product every other every week, basically, whereas for Microsoft, it took months to make even a simple decision. And you can see how when things change so fast, you really need on the ground people calling the shots. So it's a dilemma that all global companies have when they go to other uh, other places for operations. A, a really good lesson as well to understand why global yeah. companies and in, in their global oper- expansions don't always succeed. It reminds me that perhaps the issue here is that the West was its own was its own enemy because of their incompetence, their inflexibility, and their willingness to give control right and autonomy to the businesses on the ground. And I guess one of the most epic battles, which I think is being played out now, is really, I think, the whole tension that's taking place between Chinese tech firms and the Communist Party of China. I mean, the Jack Ma case of the implosion that took place, I think, two years ago, I think that was, I think, the start of everything. Where are we now? Are we seeing tensions subside substantially? Yeah, um, it's uh, I wouldn't call it a battle because there is the <laughs> companies absolutely have, yes, they have no power against the government. So it really is more the government rectifying the sector and yeah. these companies trying to appease regulators and mold themselves into into models that 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 fit the regulatory vision. Um, so where where are we in the cycle? Um, well, just recently, Didi has announced. That 
that they're allowed to relaunch their apps in the mobile store. So, you know, the, I've always looked at a few factors in terms of determining where we are in the cycle. DD being able to to relaunch in the uh, app store is one. I think the regular uh, the um, discussions surrounding Chinese companies listing in the U.S. The auditing talks are another one, and then the final one would be Ant because they their IPO got torpedoed on the eve of yeah. listing and all on all three fronts we're seeing development where towards a good direction where we're seeing improvement and a softening stance in terms of regulatory policy so we're my view is that we're at the tail end right now and what whatever the policies came out of this crackdown i think they're here to stay but it's also unlikely that we're going to see what we saw in the past two years which is this uh barrage of new policies every day from different sectors different government regulatory bodies um punishing or cracking down on on the chinese internet companies so perhaps a thawing of the relationship but this I guess, highlights that Tamsen has now become the establishment, that it's now entering a very different phase. You know, where do you see the next five years? I presume exponential growth, being this upstart, being this disruptor is not the way forward. It's very interesting because Tencent right now, even though they, they've been tamed by the regulators, um, we're not seeing any disruptors come along as well. And it's part of it is due to funding, part of it is due to the regular regulatory environment, which is actually in ironic fashion, kind of helping Tencent while we're still using mobile with mobile internet being the predominant form, I think they, they still have a stronghold within the country. Now, when the next hardware platform, when we see a change in that, when that revolution comes, whether Tencent will be able to latch on to the next wave, the next opportunity is interesting because for the longest period of time, they used investments and also uh, a forceful um, kind of um, vigilant monitoring of all their competitors to ensure that they were not left behind. Given how the company is adjusting its strategy, and I don't think they can use the sprinkling kind of method to, to, to invest in every startup anymore, it's uncertain whether they'll still be able to to catch the next wave internally, I, I feel there's a lot of um, frustration among staff and employees as well. I think Pony Ma actually, <laughs> towards the end of last year, he was personally quite frustrated yes. and in a rare show of public anger. Mm. <laughs> yes, he actually he actually chastised his uh, employees for telling for being for slacking off. So I think the company is in in a period where you know they need to adjust their culture, their company morale as well. For in terms of like where they're going, gaming is still core to to their strategy, and they've been trying to adapt um, games either. There's two strategies that they're still playing out. One is um, by making adapting mobile titles from from blockbuster IPs. That's why they imported um, Pokemon and and they they created Pokemon United, which turning that into kind of a MOBA game, um, and and trying to export their their success to other regions around the world. The other one is they're trying to look for titles that have done quite well regionally, and seeing, for example, in Europe, maybe a company has done quite well, and they're trying to see if these regional titles can have a global merit. And Lou, as we conclude our conversation, you know, if I was a 
a tech founder in Southeast Asia and I was reading the book, you know, what are the key lessons I should take away from it? From well, Tencent? for all entrepreneurs right now, the key is to survive. And a lot of the entrepreneurs that I write about in this book, they started their companies in down cycles and many of them were on the verge of collapsing and dying, as you saw with Didi, with Meituan, Tencent, even Ant. Um, so I think the lessons that they took from it and how they managed to survive uh, would be of re relevance. And also um, we're seeing China uh, another wave of Chinese entrepreneurs and investors going overseas and Southeast Asia is one of the hot destinations. So it's useful to understand how these people think, where they're coming from, essentially because they, they're going to play a bigger role in the region. Perseverance and resilience seems to be the key tenet of these entrepreneurs. Lulu, thank you for your time on The Breakfast Grill. Lulu Yilunchen, author of Influence Empire, the story of Tencent and China's tech ambitions. I'm Philip C. This is The Breakfast Grill, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.